Father, we thank you that we can come to your throne. That's a remarkable reality for those of us who are in Christ. That we have access to you. Not only does the Savior and not only does the Spirit pray for us and take our requests and our needs directly to you, but we also can come, the writer to the Hebrews says, with boldness to your throne. It is a throne of sovereignty, of majesty, of glory, of power, authority, wisdom. And it is, Hebrews tells us, a throne of grace. We need your power. We need your authority. Oh, Father, we need your grace. We are a weak people a broken people, a weary people. And when we come to you, we find the grace that we need for that hour, for that moment, for this hour and this moment. What we need, we have at your throne. Might that... Comfort us, might that guide us this morning as we are reminded about the provision of your word and as we are reminded of what we might ask of you because of this word. So might you guide us this morning as we are reminded again about the sufficiency of your eternal word. And would you be in the process of transforming us this morning by what we hear from this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What did you want this week? That's a, that's a fitting question for a week when there is much gift giving, isn't there? What kind of gifts were you anticipating giving? Emily was just about beside herself for the most part of uh, three or four weeks with excitement about what she was going to give Regine and me. She could just hardly stand it. I think she almost told us multiple times what it was. She was so excited. What kind of gifts were you excited to receive and hopeful for receiving or... What kind of gifts were you hoping you really wouldn't be receiving this Christmas season? Where did you want to go? Where did you not want to go? What were you looking forward to eating? Our family always has numerous things that we do as a tradition on Christmas morning and Christmas day. And we were excited to enjoy some of those feast things. There are some things also that we typically try to avoid at this season. So... What kind of foods were you looking forward to getting? And what kind of foods were you uh, hoping to avoid? With whom were you wanting to spend time? And with whom were you not wanting to spend time? What did you want this Christmas season? That's an appropriate question also to ask about the Scriptures. You hold a book in your hand. What do you want from that book? What are your expectations of that book? What do you think about that book and what that book might do for you? The first Sunday after Christmas every year, our focus of worship is drawn to Scripture as I remind remind us about the importance of Scripture, the priority of Scripture as we prepare to head into the new year. And for a number of years now, I've been slowly making our way through Psalm 119. I think after this morning's message, we have five sermons left, so two and a half more years, and we'll be done with Psalm 119. And this morning, we are coming to the stanza that begins in Psalm 1, uh, uh, verse 129, and you'll remember that this This psalm is an extended acrostic, so there are 22 eight-verse stanzas. Uh, 
There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So each, each of those stanzas represents a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So beginning, as it were, with A and making its way through Z, uh, the psalmist begins, uh, e- has each section that corresponds to one of those letters. And every line in that particular stanza begins with that letter. And so every word in a verse, or every line in verse, uh, in, in this stanza, starting in verse tw- 129, begins with the letter pay, with the letter pay. It's just an acrostic. It's designed to be a mnemonic device to help the readers remember and the hearers remember uh, what is said in that particular stanza. In these verses, the psalmist is speaking about some of the characteristics of Scripture. So the first three verses tell us a number of characteristics of Scripture and how we might respond to that. And then in verses 132 to the end of the stanza, the psalmist begins making a number of inquiries of God. He begins asking God for a number of favors based on what the scriptures are. And we're going to say those are essentially prayer requests. They're actually in the form of imperatives where he's commanding God, but we don't command God, we ask of God. So these are essentially requests that he makes. In light of what scripture is, he makes requests. He wants something from God and for God to do through Him. What do you want this year from God and from the Scriptures? Here's what the psalmist wants. Pray for God's Word to work in your life. And then, dear brothers and sisters, let it do what the Word does. Pray that God might open your heart in such a way that the authority of the Scriptures will work in your life in a particularly powerful way this year. And then, having prayed that prayer, let that Word do its natural, supernatural work in your life. Let's see what the psalmist says about Scripture. Since God's Word is what it is, We're going to respond in prayer. Well, what is God's word? He identifies three things in verses 129 to 131. First of all, God's word is a wonder. God's word is a wonder. Your testimonies are wonderful. Throughout this psalm, the psalmist uses a number of different words that relate to Scripture There are eight primary words that he uses in Scripture, and generally all eight of those words are used in each of the stanzas, though not always. And there are some nuances between those different words, but I think the psalmist is just using a variety of words for the sake of variety, so that we hear different aspects about the word, but are just reminded in different ways that we need to come to Scripture and we need Scripture. And the first word that he uses in verse 129 is the word testimonies. These are the witnesses. These are legal documents, if you will. They are legal decrees, and generally that's going to refer to the Mosaic law, but but it often refers far beyond the Mosaic law as it does here, I believe, to refer to all of the Scriptures. So the Scriptures are God's legally binding document on us And they demand obedience. And to these testimonies, these witnesses, these legally binding documents, this word, the psalmist says, it is wonderful. It's wonderful. That word wonderful appears only 13 times in the Old Testament. And with one exception, it always refers to God or something that God does. It is the power of God. It is the authority of God. It is the uniqueness of God. So consider, for instance, Psalm 89.5, where it also appears, 89.5, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. So we look to the heavens and we look at the sky and we look at the magnificence and the expanse of creation and we see the magnitude and the power and the authority of God. The general sense is that 
as we consider God and as we consider what He has done, it's not just that it is marvelous, but that it is something unusual. It is something out of the ordinary. It is something that is even miraculous. And so, 89.5, we, we look at the heavens and we see the miraculous hand of God at work. And it's that idea that is even in this statement about the Scriptures. Your testimonies are wonderful, unusual, out of the ordinary. This word is even used, this word wonder is even used about the coming Messiah. He is the wonderful Counselor, Isaiah 9.6. Scripture is wonderful in similar ways to the wonder of the Messiah. To say that God's testimonies and God's Word is wonderful is to say that Scripture is extraordinary and surpassing, that Scripture is unique, that Scripture is law and compels obedience, but, but it compels obedience in a different way with a different authority than any other kind of document. How is God's Word unique and wonderful? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. God's testimonies are full of wonderful revelations, commands, promises. Wonderful in their nature as being free from all error and bearing within themselves overwhelming self-evidence of their truth. Wonderful in their effects as instructing, elevating, strengthening, and comforting the soul. Jesus, the eternal word, is called wonderful. And all the uttered words of God are wonderful in their degree. Those who know them best wonder at them most. It is wonderful that God should have borne testimony at all to sinful men. And more wonderful still that his testimony should be of such a character, so clear, so full, so gracious, so Mighty. His testimonies, His Word, is wonderful. And because they are wonderful, notice what the psalmist does. Therefore, he says, my soul observes them. Since the Word is wonderful, majestic, powerful, authoritative, miraculous, it cannot be ignored. It cannot be disregarded. One cannot be complacent or indifferent to it. One must do something about this word that we have received. On Christmas Eve, about three years ago, we instituted a new family tradition. See, even I can change after all these years. And we brought in a new tradition. And so on Christmas Eve... We have uh, each person brings a wrapped book, but it is not identified to go to a particular person, and it's not identified as coming from any particular person. So we just find uh, however many people are in the room, we bring that many books. And so they're all marked, and we don't know who's going to get which book. And the idea is you get the book, and then you spend the rest of the evening and then on into the new year reading this new book, this new treasure that has come into your life. And um, and so the idea is to pick something that has been meaningful to you in the previous year and something you think others will enjoy as well. And so we, we now do that on Christmas Eve, and so we swap books on Christmas Eve this year, and... And it is exciting to see somebody, I, I gave a book that was one of the finest books I read this year. It was, it was definitely in the top five of all the books I read. And, and I was excited to give it. And, and you're just hoping that, that the book is received in the same way. And the worst thing that can happen is a person looks at it and goes, Oh, swell, Dad. Thanks. Um, but instead, the person that got my book, the next morning, I saw her reading it on the couch. It's like, oh, she likes the book. We want people to reciprocate and, and enjoy and embrace the book that we love. And friends, if that's true about a history book, which is what I gave, how much more should we embrace and love 
and cling to and observe and keep this book that God has given to us. Of all the books that are in the world, there's only one that is called Wonderful. And it is the book in your hand. And so it must be embraced in a singularly unique way. The psalmist says he will observe the testimonies. He'll observe them. He'll keep them. He'll obey them. He'll preserve them. That's a very common response to the scriptures in this psalm. Probably on the order of about a dozen times he uses that particular word. I'm going to observe it. I'm going to keep it. And we are reminded in this that you cannot be ambivalent about the word of God. It demands obedience. And that obedience is good. Listen to me. Even when obedience is hard. Does the scripture call us? To do hard things. Yes. Does the scripture call us to do things that go against the flesh? Yes. Does the scripture call us to do things that our will is often resistant to doing? Yes. Does the scripture call us to do things that are painful and hard? Yes. And brothers and sisters, when we follow the scriptures, it's always good. It always pleases the Lord, and it is always good for your soul. And notice that the psalmist also says he not only observes them, notice particularly he says, my soul observes them. That is, inwardly he observes them. He obeys genuinely and not superficially. The psalmist is addressing something that is innate to the human heart, And that is a reluctance to obey with genuineness, a reluctance to obey um, with, with, with a heart that is inclined and wants to obey. I think both Don and Keith addressed this in their Sunday schools this morning. The heart is inclined to be superficial. The will is inclined to do things at an external level without inward transformation. That was true of Israel, and it is true of us. Listen to what Amos warns his readers of. Amos chapter 5, God says through Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at your peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. And let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Listen, you carried along your Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. So here you come to worship. Let's sing to God. Let's Let's give praise to Yahweh. Let's bring him sacrifices. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's kill the offering. Let's bring the fragrant offerings. Let's come to the house. Let's sing. Let's, let's crank up the volume. And by the way, as we come, let's bring, let's bring all of the idols of all the other, of all the other nations around us at the same time in case they're right and we're wrong. Let's cover all our bases. Therefore, God says, Amos 5.27, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. He's the God of all people, the God of all armies, the God of everyone everywhere. He is supreme over all. And I will send you into captivity because you don't obey from the heart. Oh, everything was right externally. But the heart... Was far away. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a majestic 
miraculous word. When we read it, and when we let it do what it does in our souls, it will change us in a miraculous way, in a way that nothing else can change you. Let it do its work. God's Word is a wonder. God's Word, 130, is illuminating. The unfolding of your words gives light. It reveals. It illuminates. Here this is similar to what he says in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, or excuse me, Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It gives light to the eyes. The unfolding of your words gives light. That word unfolding might be translated actually something like, and there's question about what the word actually is because of the vowel structure. It could be the word that means opening or entrance. And that's interesting because think about many who would have lived in houses that either didn't have the kind of technology we do now to have large windows, so that have had very few number of windows in their houses and small windows, and many would have still resided in tents. And think about a tent made not out of canvas or nylon, but a tent made out of an animal skin. And when you're in that tent, the only light is not light that's coming from outside, but the light that you're generating inside with a candle. And when you open the flap of the tent to go in or out of the tent. Now the light from outside floods the tent and gives light inside. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. As, as, as I open up the entrance of my life, your word gives light to my life. So one translation uh, puts it this way. Your instructions are a doorway through which light shines. This is one commentator says, God's incandescent intervention, dispelling innate darkness and lingering shadows. What is the light of Scripture? Scripture shines its light on our lives and gives clarity and comfort in our confusion. It gives perspective to our problems It gives right ways for wrong desires. It gives hope for the helpless. It gives strength for the struggling. It gives instruction for the ignorant. That illumination, friends, is not just helpful. It is powerful. Look at what the psalmist says. It gives understanding to the simple. Who are the simple? Don't think about the fool of Proverbs. That's not what he's talking about here. The fool of Proverbs is the one who is rebellious in his sinfulness and in his rejection of God. That's not what he's talking about here. This is simply someone who has not yet been trained. This this is someone who is simply naive. He He just doesn't know. Nobody's told him. He hasn't, he hasn't read. He is inexperienced. He's unknowledgeable. And to that person who doesn't know, The scriptures give understanding and wisdom and direction. The scripture transforms the simple person, the untrained person, the unlearned person into someone who is wise and astute. So listen again, Psalm 19, a parallel Psalm to 119, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect Restoring the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So Luther argued that the wisdom of the Bible is hidden from those who are wise in their own eyes, but disclosed to those who are ready, prepared, eager always to be taught, judged, and to hear, rather than to teach, judge, and be heard. Do you not know what to do? 2020 has been a, a year of confusion, hasn't it? This word is our rock. This word is our source of wisdom and instruction. I cannot 
read this verse without thinking about one of the founding members of this church, Muriel Clifton. Some of you remember Muriel. I see David nodding his head. Muriel loved to quote this verse. I don't know how many times she would tell me, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And I'm simple, she would say. And she was simply saying, I, I don't have wisdom on my own. And I need, I need this verse to instruct me. I need this verse to guide me. Brothers and sisters, without Scripture, we're all living in darkness. None of us knows where to go. And frankly, that's what was compelling about Muriel's life. Because as I visited with her over the years, and I'd go up the hill, what's now field up there, and her home gone, and I'd walk up there and I'd visit with her in the afternoon, and I'd always come bring a Bible with me, and I would... I'd always pick some passage to read and I would open up my Bible and I would start reading to her and then I'd hear her whispering. And she was reading along with me, though she didn't have a text in front of her. She had just memorized pages and pages and pages of Scripture. And at the end, she didn't remember very much, but her life was consumed with Scripture. She couldn't, she couldn't remember all kinds of things. But she still remembered Scripture, and it guided her for 97 years. It gave her direction. It gave the psalmist direction. It gives us direction. The Bible gives understanding, but to understand it, you have to take it in, don't you? Says John MacArthur, you'll never know what the Word can do if you don't study and apply it. It isn't enough simply to say you believe it. It must occupy an exalted place in your life. Since God himself exalts it and magnifies it, how much more should we? If you're simple, like me and Muriel, and you need help, then you need this book. And that's one of the reasons, Keith has already alluded to it this morning, that's one of the reasons we make available to you some Bible reading plans every year. The, the object is not to make sure that you get every little box ticked off. The object is to give you some direction and some guidance for reading the Scriptures, for taking it in, for giving you direction to read across the breadth of Scripture and then let the breadth of Scripture read into your life and change your life. And so if you haven't picked up one of those plans yet, if you don't have one of those plans, if you haven't looked at them, if you don't know what you're going to do on January 1 for reading for this year, right back there, three different plans, Old Testament and Psalms, New Testament and Psalms, or the entire Bible in a year. And I would commend any of those to you. Just take in the Word. We're simple. We need instruction. And as we take it in, it will give light to us. God's Word is a wonder. God's Word is illuminating. Thirdly, God's Word is satisfying. I opened my mouth wide and I panted, for I longed for your commandments. We should take in the Word of God because it is right but we also take in the Word of God because it is satisfying to our souls. Luther said, For some years now I have read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of those branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. And the psalmist uses three words in this verse to denote his desire for the Scripture. Notice he says, I opened, I panted, I longed. He opened his mouth to eat Scripture because he was panting for it. You can, you can almost see the drool coming out of his mouth as he thinks about taking in the Scriptures. And that panting and that eating of the Scriptures came from his inward desire and longing for the Word of God. A few weeks ago, 
I came home late one day. It was probably about 6 o'clock. I was pulling the car into the garage. I hadn't even turned off the engine yet. The car windows were rolled up, and I could smell dinner. Regine had been making one of her specialties. Regine loves to make soup, and she is, hands down, the best soup maker of anybody I know. And she had been simmering a soup on the stove for like six hours. And that, that smell of that soup permeated the house and permeated the garage so that when I rolled in the car, the air conditioning sucked in those fumes and immediately I could smell dinner. And um, I walked into the house and I said, let's eat. She said, are you hungry? Well, I wasn't, but I am now. That's this panting. That's this longing. I smell it. I catch the savor of what is in this word. And I have to open my mouth and consume it. I want it now. But it's not just a longing for the Word of God, is it? It's not just, it's not just a longing for the book. It's a longing for the God of the book. And so the psalmist in Psalm 42 writes something very similar to when he, when he says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When the psalmist says in 119, in 131, I'm I'm longing for this book. It's not just the book, but he wants the God of the book, the Lord of the book, the master of the book. To want scripture is to want the God who is revealed in the word. And to want God is to want the scriptures. What's interesting, and I was meditating on that this week, why does the psalmist use this longing language? And why does he talk about desires? And he would not have us to stop just with a desire, would he? Like, well, it's enough to want it, and then you can stop. He wants us to have the goal of the desire for God and for His Word so that we are filled up with God and filled up with His Word. The goal is not salivation. The goal is satisfaction. He doesn't just want us drooling. He wants us eating this Word. The goal is to eat and be filled. I do not commend the courtship process that Regine and I went through. God has been so gracious to us who didn't know any better when we got married. But when we got married, we'd known each other for 13 months and we had been in each other's presence for less than one month. And so I lived in Dallas and she lived in the Northwest and we made a few trips to see each other that totaled less than a month. And the rest of it was correspondence. And this is way before texting. This is way before emails. This is back when they charged you by the minute for every phone call you made. And and the best time to call was late at night. And so one of the things we did was because I'm not a late night person, we sent dozens and dozens of letters. And we would take time to craft the letters and to write the, the very words we wanted that would best express our hearts. And then, and then the letter would come, and my, I would walk into the apartment, and one of my roommates would say, oh, you, you, got, a letter, you got a letter today. And it was, it was, it was, like, um, it was like speed running in the apartment to get that letter. I wasn't ambivalent and said, oh, well, it's probably just raging. It really doesn't matter. No, I got the letter and I would read the letter and I'd reread the letter and I'd reread the letter. Why? Because I wanted her. I wanted to know her. I wanted to be with her. And when I communicated to her, I wanted her to know me. This is my heart. This is my longing. This is who I am. And this is the same thing that the scriptures do for us. It is satisfying to us. 
It is satisfying to us because the scriptures get us to God, the only one who will ever satisfy you. Because the word is satisfying, John Rogers, one of the martyrs under Queen Mary, said before he died, Lord, whatever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible. Take not away thy Bible. And he was burned at the stake for that sentiment. Does the Bible satisfy you? Do we long to know it in this way? If you don't, it might be because you've never really tasted its goodness, its fullness. So start reading and meditating and contemplating and memorizing and praying the word and see if your appetite for it might not be kindled. Since the word of God is what it is, the second thing the psalmist says is pray for God's word to do what it does. It is fascinating to read through this psalm and identify all the different ways that the psalmist says he will respond to the word of God. He does things like he is in awe of the word, he believes the word, he clings to it, he considers it, he delights in it, he hates false ways because of it, he meditates on it, he remembers it, he speaks it, he gives thanks. But one of the main responses that the psalmist does with this word is to make requests of God. He asks God for things. And that is where he is in the remainder of this psalm. There are imperatives, as I noted earlier, but they're, they're requests essentially that mean, will you do this for me? Will you work this in me because of your word? And so we'll take those requests and say that they are essentially prayer requests, desires of God's work in our lives. What will you pray for God's word to do in you this year? Verse 132, pray for grace. When the psalmist asks in verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me, he is using a broad term for grace, a general term for grace. And, and the sense is something like, would you look at me? And would you turn yourself towards me? Would you incline yourself towards me? And it's a reminder that the psalmist cannot move towards God on his own and he cannot compel God to move toward him. He needs God's grace to move towards him. He needs God's favor or he can do nothing. Why can the psalmist be bold in asking for God's grace? Notice the remainder of this. Because that is the manner of you with those who love your name. That word manner is actually the word judgments. It's a word that is used often in this psalm for the scriptures. This is, this is your judgment. This is your word. This is your declaration of what you will do with those who love you. In other words, you have promised to be gracious with those who love you, who are in right relationship with you, who are in right fellowship with you. So will you fulfill your promises, your judgments in your word towards us and towards me? One commentator says, isn't this lovely? With those who love his name, his revealed name, given in his word, that is who love him, It is his way, his judgment, his sovereign decision to turn and be gracious. First, he turns us to him with the gift of repentance. And then he turns to us and smiles his grace. As he shows that grace by pouring his life-changing word into our open, panting mouths. Oh, how we need that. Well, brothers, you, you need His grace. I need His grace. And isn't it remarkable that we can ask for His grace and when we're His, be confident that He'll give it. He doesn't turn His back on His own. 
We do sometimes, don't we? The Father never turns His back on His children. He's always moving towards His children. He's always extending grace towards His children. He can do nothing else. He is the Father. He will not turn you away. So pray for grace. 133. Pray for freedom. Establish my footsteps in your word. That's a request to be made firm, to be steady. When he, when he talks about his feet, he's talking about his life. It's a figure of speech that represents the totality of his life and everything he does. And he says, I, I want my life to be rooted in your word. I want to be committed to the word of God. And I want to live according to your word. And there's a particular thing that he wants to be firm in. Notice the second line in 133. And do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. He doesn't want sin to have dominion or lordship or sovereignty over him. He doesn't want to be controlled and ruled by sin. And isn't that always the temptation that comes with sin? It's not just the sin itself, but it is, it is what sin wants to do to us, to, to make us subservient to it. Listen to what the Lord says to Cain, Genesis 4, 6, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fall, fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Its desire is to master you. Its desire is for you. That's where sin will always take us, in submission to it and under its lordship. The general nature of sin is that it is enslaving. It is a taskmaster, and it is a terrible taskmaster. It never longs for our good. It always longs for our destruction. And the end of every sin, the power of sin, is death. Satan's WMD, weapon of mass destruction, is sin and death. Sin only takes. Sin never brings life. Sin will never leave us ultimately happy. Oh, it will make us giddy perhaps in a moment. But it will never leave us there. It always provides a mastery and a lordship that is binding and destructive. But there is one who has freed us from sin's bondage. We know that that's the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's freed us. He's liberated us so that we no longer have to engage in sin. Our lives really can do what the psalmist asks in this verse. Establish my footsteps in your word. We can be rooted in the word such that iniquity and sin no longer dominates, controls, and compels us. We can live free from sin. Which is why Jesus taught His disciples to pray, and lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, keep me from temptation. Keep me from succumbing to that temptation. Pray for freedom, freedom from sin. Pray for obedience. 134, he says, redeem me from the oppression of man. Redemption is a common Old Testament request, it's a desire from deliverance, a deliverance from dangers generically and often from oppression of others around them. And that's what he's talking about here. It's, it's, not just, it's not just that I'm struggling in this world, I'm struggling with people who want to do me harm, who want to persecute me. 
But what is notable is not that he wants freedom from trouble. What's notable is not that he he wants freedom from persecution. But he wants freedom from persecution for a particular reason, 134b, that I may keep your precepts, that I can keep them, be attentive to your word, to attend to it, to protect it, standing guard over it like a guard at a gate. And what's the connection between those two? The connection is when we are persecuted, when we are suffering at the hands of others, we are going to be tempted and inclined to go in particular ways away from God's Word. And he says, would you protect me from oppressors so that I can stand firm with you? When we are ostracized, when we are persecuted, we will be tempted to fear and anger and maliciousness and discouragement and despair and wandering and rebelling against God and misusing words and complaining. And the psalmist says, I don't want that in my life. Would you protect me from those who would persecute me and redeem me out and buy me out of that situation? The psalmist wants to obey, and he recognizes that suffering will be, bring particular temptations to wandering from God. And so he asks for deliverance. He asks for deliverance not to have an easier life, but to have a faithful life. You suffering today? Are you persecuting? Or being persecuted? You're living with someone that's a challenge? It's hard? You're living some, with someone that's brutal against you? Understand, your heart is going to be inclined to bitterness. Understand that you're going to be tempted in many ways to move away from God. And what you need is to come to Him and cling to Him by the power of His Word so that He will protect you and redeem you in that situation. Pray for obedience. If you're in a challenging situation, particularly brothers and sisters, Pray that God will give you steadfastness to do what everything else in the world is telling you. Run away. Get away. Buy a ticket to Tahiti. It's got to be better. Dump the jerk. It's got to be better. No. Faithfulness. Persistence. Endurance following hard after God when times are hard. That's what the faithful servant does. Pray for obedience. Fourthly, pray for blessing. Verse 135. Make your face to shine upon your servant. That word shine is the same word as he uses in verse 130. Your words give light, light and shine are the same word. I, I need you. I need, I need your benevolence. I need your blessing to shine on me, your servant. That sounds an awful lot like the ironic benediction in Numbers 6, doesn't it? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. And pray that God might bless you and favor you with His grace such that you can live, notice, as His servant. As one who is in submission to, enslavement to Him and dependent on Him. The psalmist says he needs God's grace and he needs God's favor if he is going to survive and thrive in life. 
And he especially wants the blessing of instruction that will lead him to obedience. That's another thing that he asked to pray for. Pray for instruction. The end of verse 135, and teach me your statutes. He wants grace and he wants to be taught the statutes of God. The statutes of God, the direction of God, the principles of God that direct us in life, that point us the way to go. That's a blessing in our lives. And so he says, would you teach that to me? The psalmist wants grace, yes. He wants God's blessing, yes. He wants God's favor, yes. But he doesn't want it for self-indulgent pleasures and ease. He wants it so that he can be instructed, so that he can really learn the value of God's word and that he can grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So pray for God's blessing and favor on your life in such a way that you might learn Him, so that you might learn Him. Since God's Word is what it is, pray for God's Word to do what it does. One last reality that the psalmist notes, verse 136, and grieve for those who do not do what the word commands. It's interesting that he talks about the oppressors in verse 134. The oppressors also are in verse 121, 122. And he asks for God to protect him, 124, to give him understanding. Verse 126, as he thinks about the oppressors, he says, God, it's time for you to act. They've broken your law. God, would you... Would you um, pursue justice with those who are rejecting you? And while you're doing that, he says in 127, I will love your commandments and I will esteem right. I will do right everything that your precepts command me to do. Verse 128. So in the previous stanza, he says, God, there are people who reject you. Would you at the right time Deal with them in righteous ways. That's a gentle way of saying, would you have a hell that will take care of unrighteousness eternally? In this stanza, he doesn't ask for justice. He grieves. My eyes shed streams of water wept and I wept and I wept because they do not keep your law. They're disobedient and rebellious. They've broken your law and I grieve for them because I know their end. Brothers, it's, it is so easy to be self-righteous against the folly and the disobedience of the world. It's easy to correct. It's easy to correct in a snarky way. I know, I have that unspiritual gift. It's easy to be sarcastic. It's easy to be condemning. It's easy to go to a gay pride parade and have signs that say things like you're going to hell and do it blissfully and gleefully. Brothers, do you you grieve? Do you weep for the proliferation of lawlessness? says one commentator, the psalmist here has abundant sorrow for abounding sin. Can we be like Paul, who when he saw the blindness of the Athenians was stirred in his spirit? Or when he contemplated the unbelief of his Jewish counterparts 
wept with anguish over their unbelief. Romans 9 and Romans 10 and 11. Or are we cold and dispassionate about the sin of sinners? Says Matthew Henry, the sins of sinners are the sorrows of saints. Can we grieve for those who are right now just like we were in bondage and ensnared and chained by their sin? They need, they need compassion just as we needed compassion. They need grace. They need our tears. Says one commentator, tears show compassion and compassion wins others far more effectively than belligerent arguments and certainly more effectively than anger. Do we weep for others, sorrowing over the pain we know their unbelief and disobedience bring? So, watch your own heart. Watch your own heart from the Word, which does its wonder in you. And then pray for that Word to change you and grieve for those who are unchanged. Let's bow and pray what the psalmist has exhorted us to pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of the miraculous power of your word. When the psalmist says that the word is wonderful, miraculous, it is another way for him to say that it is authoritative and it is sufficient. It is everything that we need. We need nothing else when we have your word. And Father, we pause now to pray for our own lives and our own hearts in accord with what the psalmist has prayed for himself. And as we see the ending of the year 2020, and contemplate a new year, 2021, with no understanding of what might come our direction. 2021 could be a year of uncommon blessing and kindness. It could be a year of such extreme hardship that it makes the past 12 months seem like ease and joy. And regardless of what comes our direction in 21, Father, we ask for your word to work this in our life. Would your word be a grace to us? Would your word be an expression of your turning towards us and your movement towards us in such a way that we understand our bond with you our connection to you, our fellowship with you. You are gracious to us because you have loved us and because we love you. Might your word be that kind of expression of grace in our lives. Father, would you take this word and entrench our lives, our feet, our desires in this word so that sin does not have domination over us. Even as, even as we worship this morning, some in this room, some on live stream are ensnared by sin. They're being held captive. Maybe technically the captivity has been loosed, that they've been freed because of salvation through Christ, but they're still living as if they are captive to sin. Father, would your word this year, this month, this week have such power so as to entrench us in you and liberate us from the things that have entangled us. And so, Father, would you make us to be obedient to you, to follow after you, to be inclined to you, to want to obey 
not just circumstantially, not just superficially, but genuinely from the heart. Might it be our, our heart's longing to do what you say in this book. And so, Father, as we do that, would you be pleased to bless us, to favor us with your kindness, with your wisdom, with your sufficient grace so that we can walk in obedience to you, even, Father, when we are oppressed, especially, Father, when we are oppressed. Might our hearts, by your grace, be inclined to follow you. And then, Father, would you instruct us, teach us, and by that teaching, transform us. And as we are transformed, might we also have a longing for the transformation of the ungodly around us. Oh, Father, keep us from sniping condescension and keep us grieving for those who are trapped by their sin. And as we grieve for them, might they see our compassion and ask us, why are you so hopeful? Why are you different? How can I be like you are? And might we have the joy of seeing our enemies come to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.